Thank you, uh, Paddy. Um, as Richard says, my name's Tim. Let me add my welcome to that of Richard's. Um, I've set my phone down here because the, the clock at the back isn't working. Um, and it reminds me of the, the joke I always heard preachers say when I was younger. When a preacher would take his watch off, set it on the lectern, the little boy turned to his mom and said, Mommy, what does it mean when he does that? She leaned back and said, absolutely nothing. Um, but we will try and keep to time uh, this evening. It is, a, it is always a joy. It's always a bit of excitement to start a new book, uh, a new study. Um, but perhaps Matthew doesn't initially do anything to dismiss the reputation that finance guys have of being a little dull. Because he starts this epic story, this epic gospel with a genealogy. I actually felt an urge to give Paddy a little round of applause for reading so well. It reminds me of, you know, before podcasts, when you used to flick through the radio channel, uh, channels and, and you'd come across the shipping forecast on Radio 4, just a list of names, and with the right Radio 4 voice, it probably could put one to sleep. But before you skip the channel or skip over the, the passage to get to the good bit, I want us to note just in verse number one, because Matthew tries to catch our attention here with some outrageous claims right from the outset of his gospel account. Verse number one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally in Greek, the first two words are the title of the book of Genesis in the Greek Old Testament. I can imagine everyone who knew their Old Testament sitting there, hearing it for the first time, thinking, oh, this is quite mouth-watering for a start. Is he claiming that this is a new Genesis? A new creation, perhaps? And then Matthew goes on to whet our appetite further because he gives us three titles for Jesus. I wonder, did you notice? Christ. That's not actually Jesus' second name. That is the word Messiah. It means anointed. It was technically a title, the hoped-for anointed one of God. God's special anointed one. Secondly, that the son of David the one that God had promised would come and restore David's throne, the, the one who would build an eternal kingdom, who would restore the fortunes of Israel and bring peace and prosperity to the world. And thirdly, the son of Abraham. In one sense, that's obvious, right? If he's a son of David, then he has to be a son of Abraham. But of course, that triggers in our minds, or those of us who may know the Jewish scriptures, the great promise that God made to Abraham that through his son, the whole world will find a blessing. And so Matthew's actually making outrageous claims right from verse number one, and it begs the question, is this what's happening? Is this true? Is this who this Jesus character is? And Matthew, in his methodical, spreadsheet-loving way, will go to great lengths to show us the evidence that Jesus is truly the rightful, promised king of David's line, and by extension, he is the king through whom God will save the world. And if that's true, if that's true, then that changes everything for each one of us and every aspect of our lives. So let's jump into the rest of the passage. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2 this evening. And 
Our first point is Jesus is the long-promised Savior King for all. And in verse number 1 to 17, we get his ancestral credentials. You see, Matthew, in recording this genealogy, as well as showing us that, that Jesus is the legal son of David, he's also recapping the whole Old Testament story. He, he, he purposely doesn't give us an exhaustive list of every single generation, but he's omitted some of them so as it's purposefully structured and it's sort of symbolic and poetic. He has these three sets of 14, which he explicitly calls out in verse number 17. And he's given us a sweep, if you like, of, of the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. And so he starts with Abraham, verse number two. Of course, the story of Abraham is back in Genesis chapter 12. It's set against the backdrop of the story of creation. The story of humanity made in the image of God, made to reflect his goodness and to help God administer his rule on the earth. But Adam and Eve failed. They brought death, pain, devastation into the creation by believing the lie that God is not good. And so God chose an individual, a family, Abraham. And as we said before, he, he made a promise that through this one man, this one man's family, he would bless the world. A new tribe. God rescues them out of Egypt, as we've been learning about in Exodus in the mornings. He gives them the law. They're to be a renewed humanity, a beacon to the world. But how do they get on? Pass or fail? It's a fail. So God's response to that, 14 generations on in Matthew's story of the history of the Old Testament, is to call out one family line from within Israel, from the tribe of Judah, a line of kings headed by David himself, the man after God's own heart. These kings are to be shepherds of, of Israel, to, to restore them back to the word of God and to the ways of God. But how do they do? Pass or fail? They fail. And after that, the second set of 14, Matthew reminds us, that sends the people of Israel into captivity. The repeated failure leads them to be stripped from their land, their country destroyed, their kings deposed, the line of David. And there's one slight partial return at the end of the Old Testament, but it doesn't work out well. It ends with disaster, and that's the three sets of 14. And we're left at the end of the Old Testament asking the question, what is all this about? What about God's promises? It's, it's like it's an unfinished story, a plot with rising tension and drama, but with no climax, no resolution. It's a bit like, for me, June part one. I don't know if anybody saw this movie, one of my favorite movies from the last few years. And all year I've been waiting for June part two to come out. I love the first movie, but it leaves so many unanswered questions. What is the fate of Paul, the, the sort of hero of the story? What's the crack with the fact that he can ride these sandworms or, or, or the crazy women who are plotting with his mum? What, what, what are all of these things going to lead to? And what's worse is that, that Rupin told me last month that the, the next movie's been delayed because of these Hollywood strikes. And, and so there's nothing resolved. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the next installment of the story. 
And in many ways, the Hebrew scriptures is a bit like that. It's just so obviously part one. It's a story in search of an ending. Is all hope lost? Are the promises dead? How can this problem of continual human failure be solved? And what Matthew is saying to us this evening is the answer is here. The answer is Jesus. I wonder if you noticed, firstly, in verse number six, as Paddy read it, that that when he came to David, he just adds that little bit of emphasis. He says, David the king. Did you get it? And secondly, I wonder if you ask why 14? Why 14 generations, 14 generations? Why does Matthew put such effort into styling his, his retelling of the history like this? Well, in Hebrew, it's common for each letter of the alphabet to be given a number, and then for the total letters in someone's name to then become a significant number for them. And many commentators point out that David, in the original Hebrew, is four plus six plus four plus 14. So 14 is like David's number. It's a bit like in basketball. If you say 23, you know you're talking about Michael Jordan. Matthew couldn't be clearer. He's got David the king in the heart of his story. He's got 14. He's got 14. He's got 14. He's saying that Jesus is the son of David. He is the long-promised savior king who has come. And thirdly, As we went into the next paragraph, look at verse number 20. We look at what the angel says to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, get it? You get it again? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. You shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the resolution that the whole Old Testament is crying out for, failure upon failure upon failure. What the Bible calls sin, missing the mark, falling short from Eden to exile, who will save? Yahweh will save. Jesus, he will save. So this is the fundamental thing that Matthew wants us to get in his gospel. Jesus is here, and the fundamental purpose of his kingdom is to save us from sin. Folks, Matthew's just getting started. But he will confront us in this account with our need, with our sin. And, and that will get us a little bit uncomfortable. You see, Matthew knows that, that sin is the serious problem that has plagued the, the, the history of the Old Testament generations, but it's also the problem that plagues us. I wonder if you've ever been confronted by sin, or, or failure is probably the word that we would use. It's not just the story of the Old Testament people, is it? It's, it's our story too. Failure that we both experience and we cause. People we've hurt, 
mistakes we have made, things we have said, regret, shame, damage, done, not only to others, but ultimately by failing to use God's good gift of life correctly, we've wronged God and we've sinned against God. But that's part one of our story. He has not left us without resolution. Jesus has come, a promised savior for all. Secondly, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the the long-promised Savior King for all in his fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. After this genealogy from verse number 18 in chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 2, Matthew selects five different incidents. In each one of them, he wants to see how that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptural prophecy. So drop your eye to verse number 22, which we read. All of this took place that the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then again in chapter 2, verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. Down again to verse number 15, chapter 2, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Again, then verse number 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And finally, verse 23 again, if we don't get the picture, he gives it to us five times over. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, these five incidents and these five fulfillments of Scripture are not always the easiest to understand, and we are tight for time. But as Matthew considers the whole Old Testament history, its patterns, its its peoples, the prophecies, he sees that it constructs this portrait, if you like, a, a silhouette of pieces and we can use it to hold it up, to hold up and to, to match and identify the Messiah. And, and that's what he's doing. Matthew is, is pulling together these five different incidents from Jesus' birth. And he's pointing it back and saying, this history, this matches with Jesus' origins. He fits exactly what was promised before. He matches the, the puzzle pieces. So in the first story... We've touched on already the the message of the angel to Joseph, but but Matthew then quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah had prophesied hope to the faithless house of, of David that a promised Emmanuel would come. And so Matthew can point and say, this is exactly what's happened. God has intervened through supernatural power, through the Holy Spirit and a virgin's womb. God himself, Emmanuel, has now come in flesh and blood. Then in the, in the second passage, in chapter 2, 1 to 11, the, the, the Magi come from the east, and they kind of shuffle their way into Herod's courts in Jerusalem, looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Herod calls the religious experts who, who are able to bring out Scripture, and, and Matthew is purposely being ironic here. The religious experts are able to point exactly to where the Messiah should be but they don't go themselves. 
It's the strangers from the east. It's the randomers who go meet the Messiah and worship, fulfilling multiple scriptures in the Old Testament. Thirdly, Jesus' evacuation and refugee journey in verses, in the next, in verses 13 to 15. Here Matthew quotes from Hosea 11 verse 1. The, the prophecy originally was describing the people of Israel's rescue from Egypt. But after it was written, Matthew and, and others knew that Israel had failed as God's son. So Matthew points out that actually Jesus is now in his evacuation and ref, refugee journey to and from Egypt, repeating the Exodus and fulfilling it with a fuller meaning and pattern. He is the true son, a much greater son who will define God's people. Then again, the fourth story where Herod slays the children. Once again, Matthew looks back to the Old Testament, looks to Jeremiah and quotes from the time of the exile when the tears flowed because of the children of Israel being torn from their families and taken into Babylon. Matthew sees the same thing being repeated again where Herod mercilessly kills the children in Bethlehem. And he recognizes this repeated pattern and he's saying the cycle of tears and sorrow from exile and bloodshed, it's now going to end because the Messiah that Jeremiah was pointing forward to is here. And then finally, as Jesus comes back and his family takes him to settle in Nazareth, once again, Matthew sees in Scripture, not a precise quotation, but throughout the Old Testament, it says that the Messiah is going to be despised, looked down on, considered underwhelming. So, of course, he sees in the fact that he goes to live in Nazareth, a place that was scorned and despised and considered the back end of nowhere, it again fulfills what the expectation of the Old Testament Scripture. So, as he puts together these Old Testament patterns and quotations and prototypes and prophecies, it puts together this jigsaw puzzle that matches exactly Jesus. You see, Jesus, Matthew isn't saying, you know, I've met this wonderful chap, this Jesus, he's great, there's a, there's a spirituality about him, there's a, there's a touch of divine. No, no, he's saying that this Jesus, this man, from an obscure village in the north of the country is of royal blood and he is the long-promised savior king. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he matches all the expectations, all the puzzle pieces that we were given over generations and years before match to him and his birth story. You see, it's important for us to realize, and if you're new to Christian things, it's important to understand that, that the Christian gospel is not a philosophy. It is based in history. Anybody can invent a philosophy, and many have actually done so and gained many, many disciples. But you can't organize yourself to be born to a particular family line. You, you can't organize 1,500 years of history before you 
Can you? You see, one of the unique claims of the Christian gospel is that God himself has so organized history so that he himself can step in and be part of the story. And that's what Matthew is pointing to Jesus and saying has happened. He has come, Emmanuel, God with us, in flesh and blood. Well, so what? Where is all this going? What is Matthew's sort of goal and objective in this book? One of the things about Matthew, like many great storytellers, is he doesn't sort of stop narrating the story and turn around and and talk to us directly. But a big clue in in what Matthew's goal is in, in pulling this book together and presenting it to us is found in the final verses of the book. And since we're going to take us a couple of years to complete the 28 chapters, um, I thought we could take a sneak peek. So if you turn over to chapter 28, let's turn to the final, the, the final few verses, the famous final verses in Matthew's gospel. This is our Lord's farewell message to his apostles and disciples after his death, burial, and resurrection, moments before he would return to heaven. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Well, I wonder if you noted that there's actually quite a few themes and repeated in the conclusion that we've already come across in the first two chapters in the prologue. Firstly, the authority of the Savior King, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All nations, we thought about him as the the son of Abraham, the one who had been blessing to every nation in the earth. And Emmanuel, God with us, I am with you always. But, but Matthew's goal, the aim that he's driving to the whole way through this book that he presents to us, is this verb in the center. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Literally, in your going, or, or as you go, make disciples. And of course, this commission, this conclusion, where he's going to at the end, it doesn't sort of come out of the blue. The the question of discipleship is interwoven throughout the book. That's the question that Matthew is asking you. Are you following this Jesus as his disciple? You see, Matthew himself, of course, in chapter 9 will record how he left his lucrative employment to follow Jesus. In listening to him, he he found something more precious than money. And so throughout this book, he's going to be describing, analyzing, showing us what it means to be a disciple, what it involves. And he's going to continually ask us, do you want to be his disciple too? Before he concludes his letter by instructing us to be disciple-making disciples. The word disciple simply means learner. 
And that connects to one of the key passages in the whole book in chapter 11, where Jesus says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, before commissioning disciple makers, Jesus invites us to come, to rest, and to learn, to be disciples. And you know, this goal of Matthew becomes even more apparent as we look at the the sort of structure of the book. I don't do this often, uh, but it is quite helpful to, to note that Matthew, in his very neat and orderly way, absolute bean counter after all, he has carefully split his gospel into these five clear major blocks. And he signs off each one of the five blocks as follows. Chapter 7, verse 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. 11.1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. 1353, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue. 191, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. 261, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you feel the repetitive, the, the repetitive rhythm that Matthew is putting into his gospel? After every block, he reminds us, Jesus is speaking. Jesus is instructing. Jesus is teaching. He's not a harsh king. His yoke isn't heavy. He's a king who offers us rest, security, and calls us to become a learner calls us to become a disciple under him in his kingdom. To be a disciple is to to live your entire life under the shadow of your teacher. John Mark Comer, an American Bible teacher, helpfully describes the process of first century, sort of third level education carried out by the rabbis, the teachers of Israel at the time. There would be three goals in being a disciple. Step number one was to be with your rabbi, to be with your teacher. Discipleship or apprenticeship, as Comer translates it, was 24-7. You would spend every waking moment with your teacher. You would eat three meals a day with him. You would sleep by his side because most of the teaching doesn't happen in a classroom. It happens between village to village. It happens by his side. Step number two, your goal was to become like your rabbi, to become like your teacher. That was the heart and soul of becoming an apprentice, becoming a disciple. The point of being with them 24-7 is that you're working to, to copy their every single move. His voice, his logic, his heart, even his mannerisms. Step number three, your goal was to do what he did. The purpose of 
Apprenticeship, discipleship was to prepare you with the expectation that one day, after years of shadowing your teacher, you would step into the role of teacher yourself. Every disciple becomes a disciple maker. And we see that threefold pattern repeated time and time again in each of the gospel accounts. So, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like if our entire life is built around those three goals? To be with Jesus, to become like him, to do what he did. That's what Matthew's goal is for us in presenting Jesus to us in his gospel. And then as we get to the end, as we get to chapter 28, he then commissions us to not only be disciples, but to be disciple makers. That might not sound new to you, I hope it doesn't. But it sure is easy to lose sight of that. Some combination of busyness, forgetfulness, it's easy to get distracted from making the main thing the main thing. And any sort of subtle refocusing of the Christian life or church life away from that heartbeat of being a disciple-making disciple will dilute and confuse us. That's Christ's agenda. That's what he commissions at the end of this gospel. So whether you've been here for a week or you've been here for 60 years, are you a disciple of Jesus? And are you a disciple maker? Think again of that threefold call. Are you helping others spend time with Jesus? Are you helping others become like Jesus? Are you helping others emulate and act like Jesus? Christ's commission is is not primarily about cross-cultural mission, going to a country out there. It's not reserved for the select few keen Christians. This is normal Christianity, being a disciple-making disciple. So let's conclude uh, with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Matthew's inspired record. We thank you for confronting us again of our need for Jesus, your long-promised-for Savior King. We praise you that the whole sweep of the Old Testament that cries out and points to him has been fulfilled in his coming, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and we long for him to come again. We pray that we would hear Matthew's invitation this evening to follow him, to receive rest, to become a learner in his kingdom. And then help us to make disciple-making our key agenda point as followers of Christ. For his glory and in his name we ask it. Amen.